Welcome to Fernway Insights, where prominent leaders and influencers shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector discuss topics that are critical for executives, boards, and investors. Fernway Insights is brought to you by Fernway Group, a firm focused on working with industrial companies to make them unrivaled segment of one leaders. To learn more about Fernway Group, please visit our website at fernway.com. Hi everyone, this is Paolo Baldesi, Senior Vice President of Fernway Group. Welcome to another episode of Fernway Insights. Today, our guest is Professor Ludovic Falipu, a specialist on asset management with a special focus on investment in private equity funds. Ludovic Falipu is a professor of financial economics at the Said Business School and the head of the finance group there. So Professor Ludovic has been named as one of the 40 most uh, outstanding business school professors under uh, 40 in the world in 2014, and as one of the 20 most influential individuals in private equity in Europe in 2016. So Professor Filippo has strong links with senior practitioners in the industry, very often speaks at practitioner conferences and appears in the media internationally. He's the author of uh, the bestseller, Private Equity Laid Bare, and his paper, Our Alternative at Private Markets, is one of the three 2018 recipients of the Jack Trenoir Prize, sponsored by the Q Group. So it's no surprise uh, that Professor Filippo's research has received considerable attention from both the investment professional and the, academy, the academic community. And with that, and so with that, I welcome uh, you to the podcast. Thank you for being here with us today. We are super excited to have you here. And I really look forward to the conversation. This is a super exciting, uh, relevant topic for the private equity community. So thank you for being here today. Very good. So let's uh, maybe just uh, jump right in. You have been researching the private equity industry for two decades now. So let's start by talking about some of the highlights of your research. Could you elaborate a bit on your uh, key findings? I guess uh, yeah, 20 years is not easy to, 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 to summarize, 20 years of work, but I, I guess the key findings were already around this since inception IR behaving in a weird way. Probably one of the highlights were when I found out that this number by Yale endowment of 30% return in private equity that everybody cites all the time never changed over time. And it was because it was a since inception IR and therefore had nothing to do with the performance of Yale which I'm sure is good, but we have no proof because they never gave us their multiple of money or anything that we could really judge their performance with. And so I guess that, 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 that was a, 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 major, a major discovery. And then the rest of my work has been focused on trying to find better methods to evaluate how much volatility practical investments really have. How do they compare to investments in public markets? What are the caveats there? Uh, about choice of benchmarks and so on. So a lot of my work has been about undressing a bit of the window dressing efforts of the consultants and marketing people of that asset class, showing like the tricks they use to portray things in a certain way. So that, I guess that has been a, my main contribution. Great. So it sounds like a big push for transparency. So based on this, what are the right set of metrics that we should be using to measure performance? Of uh, private equity funds, then so even after twenty years, I'm still working on 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 proposing a metric that would give a rate of return of private equity. We still don't have that for 
but to what we do have and we 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 have consensus of is 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 that the PME, which is basically a net present value, is the right measure to assess whether a given private equity program has performed a given benchmark like the S&P 500 or or any other benchmarks. What we do not have is is a measure by how much annualized they have outperformed because we do not have any good measure of rates of returns or anything like that. So we always go back to IR, which is uh, very often misleading. So basically, the only measure we have at the moment that we can roughly trust is the multiple of money and then the, the discounted version of it, which is the PME or, or net present value. But none of these are even perfect. Even multiple of money can be manipulated in because it depends what you treat as an investment versus a negative divestment and these sorts of things. So there are ways to manipulate a bit these measures, but it's a lot more difficult to manipulate than, than IR. So the best measures to use really are PME against a number of, of benchmarks to get an idea of how one program compares against a variety of benchmarks. The choice of benchmark is very important and the set of benchmarks to choose is very important. And then uh, the multiple of money is a good one to always keep an eye on. I understand. And if you look at the past 10 years, right, I understand that we probably don't have a unique answer, but what's your perspective on the real performance of the private equity industry? So before COVID, like 2006 to before COVID, you could choose any benchmark in the US and US private equity and US public equity would be at par. Almost no matter what you chose as a benchmark in the US, maybe with a slightly partial exception with Russell 2000, which is an index that was designed to perform less well than other indices, which is why it's a favorite as a benchmark. But, but roughly, you would take most US listed equity benchmarks against private equity from 2006, and you could start at about any time from 2006 to before the COVID, you would be in the ballpark of, of the same number. The COVID changed things a little bit because private equity is very overweight in, in healthcare and tech over the last 10 years. And so during the COVID, these investments did extremely well. So especially venture capital. And so there comes again the question of a benchmark is like you can say, well, look, venture capital is up 80% over the last two years. It's amazing. It beats any, it beats the S&P 500. But you could say, well, venture capital is basically tech and healthcare. And if I take tech and healthcare ETFs, they are also up. In fact, I have an ETF that I'm designing on private equity firms that are publicly listed or listed firms that are in the, in the industry of private equity. And my index is also up 80% since the beginning of the COVID. That is something that I insisted on already 15 years ago and kept on insisting on. The choice of a benchmark is key and it's very rare that people care in practice to choose the right benchmark or something accurate. They, are, they care much more about selling their product. And so showing that venture capital did 80%, they take the S&P 500 and say, that's it. Before the COVID, where S&P and, and private equity were at par, then they would say, oh, just let's look at global private equity and let's look at MSCI World, which is an index that has underperformed the S&P 500 over the last 10 and 20 years, and say, oh, but against the MSCI World, we are doing well. So there hasn't been too much of an effort to choose accurately the benchmarks. And, and that drives everything, in fact, because private equity performances, again, when you compare to stocks that are quite similar, it seems to be in the ballpark of that, those returns all the time. But of course, you can always, you know, 
because of the industry tilt, you can always like find global benchmarks that, that practically would be. The, the case is particularly strong in Europe, where European indices are dominated by oil and gas companies, banks, some pharmaceuticals, and some food company. That, that's what most stock in Europe are, and Spain, etc., and, and even more so in the UK. And they invest in, in industries that tend to be much more tech-focused and the like. And then you find that if in Europe, you were then comparing private equity to public equity, private equity outperforms. But we know that the tech industry and the like has outperformed tremendously over like oil and gas, big banks, and so on over the last 15 years. So there has never been like a very good effort. And because we don't quite have the data to go to the level of granularity that would be required to do an apple to apple comparison. Nonetheless, in the US, if you would compare it with broad, and clean stock market indices, even before 2006, if you go as far back as you want and you put all the private equity together, you would be very close in returns at any point in time. And if you choose a specific benchmark like the S&P 500, the S&P 500 had the worst performance in a century from 98 to 2006. That's why it was a favorite as a benchmark during the early 2000s. And so then people say, oh, practically did very well against the S&P 500 in the early 2000s. But then after that, it didn't do very well. Well, because the S&P 500 did terrible over these 10 years and did, and did as normal thereafter. So if you, tr if you clean on your benchmark, it, private equity and public equity returns are fairly close. It does look like private equity is a bit above, depending on regions, et cetera, you know, more or less above, but not by like the sorts of margins that consultants like tell people. Through your work, you've been very vocal about the lack of transparency in, in private equity. Also, today, you've mentioned a few times the lack of data. Uh, can you just tell us a bit more why that's the case? Well, because the, the industry never had the need of sharing the data. They, they never had to. And so, and, and so they kept on you know, having all kinds of practices that were not proper for a number of firms. And, but they, you know, they didn't tell anyone, no one asked them questions, nobody really wanted to know. And so they thought, you know, this is, this is fine. I think it, overall, it works against the industry because you are favoring losers in a sense of people who are cheating and hiding stuff, then can stay in business and compete against the good firms. And if anything, push the good firms to like be more borderline. So there are some firms that behave very well. But, but it's not quite fair to them to, be, to, 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 to compete against people who, who do not behave in a similar way. So I've always felt that this lack of transparency prevents the industry to grow further and also isn't fair vis-a-vis -vis over asset classes like mutual funds and the like, and it isn't fair within private equity between the good and the bad guys. Despite that, though, despite the lack of transparency and returns being way more modest than actually advertised, the private equity sector as a whole has been raising funds at really record pace if you look at the last few years. So I was just curious to hear what's your perspective on that and why that's the case. There are, there are more than one reasons, and we probably would need a couple of hours to go through all of them. I think that the number one reason is really this belief that people will not get to their 8% return they need and they project it, et cetera, if they use bonds because if you have a yield of zero, that's the max you can earn. And so that's it, you, you, you're done there. If you go to public equity, somehow 
people have believed that they cannot get, get more than 6-8% return given how high the valuations are on public markets, which is probably true, but the public markets has delivered 12% over the last 10 years, has delivered 12% over the last 20, over the last 30, et cetera. In the U.S., you know, the, the, the returns has always been on any single decade at about 10, 12%. But one can see why, you know, maybe the past was always 10%, but now we think it's more like an eight uh, with public equity because the valuations are so high. But somehow people believe that, that then if somebody is going to give them more, it can only be private equity. And so you have a strong belief and then you have a consultant who then can easily, given, you know, they can choose benchmark, they cherry, cherry pick, they can present performance in the way they want. It's then pretty easy, easy in this sort of asset class to then show a very rosy picture. And so, so then, you know, you have this narrative, et cetera, this, this, this belief uh, that, that is very strongly anchored and that people have. It is also that there is a lot of money. This is the most expensive asset class of all times. We are talking about 7% fees a year. So, so many, many people are making a lot of money by selling this product and by believing in this product. So, you know, if you see evidence that, that is itchy here or there, it's, it's pretty easy to ignore it if your paycheck depends on you ignoring it. So I, I think a lot of people have paid a lot of money to sell something that is very expensive, but is easy to show as, as being the golden goose. And so mm-hmm. it's an easy sale is, 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 is what you want to do. So that, that, that is the number one reason. But one reason that is not in, enough, or often enough mentioned is that it is a lot more fun to be in private markets. If I ask my students who wants to work in fixed income, I, I don't get anyone to raise their hands. Maybe still nowadays, if I say consulting, maybe some hands will be up, but there won't be that many, unless it's like within consulting, like working with private equity firms and in, as a way to get into private equity later. If I ask them who wants to be in public markets, doing ETFs, doing market trading, uh, liquidity, option trading, any kind of derivatives trading, no one is interested in that. Hedge funds, maybe like two, three people out of a hundred, right? It used to be hard. It's like nobody wants to do hedge funds. So where do everyone wants to go? Well, private equity, because that's fun. And so if everybody wants to be in private equity, anybody in the pension fund, as soon as they get high, they say, can I be in the private equity division? They all then will like push in any organization for having more private equity to be involved with private equity because it's a lot more fun to control and work with a company to make it grow than just like trading stock A versus B and like predicting whether Tesla would go up or down, right? This is, this is boring like mad. But being able to take over Tesla and then thinking about the strategy of Tesla, now that's fun, right? So everybody wants to do private equity. And I think this push for like, this is fun and it's pretty easy for me to go to any decision maker and say, but look, the returns are amazing and everything is great there. So, and I'm going to make more money if I do that. So why wouldn't you let me do that, right? So you have this other push. But there are many other reasons like the NAVs that hardly move. So that's also handy for a number of asset managers. You have many, many other reasons. But these are really the, the two key ones, I, I would think. Thank you. It makes sense. Switching gears now, Professor, your story is really fascinating. You grew up in the French countryside and I believe you are among the first ones in your family to actually go to high school and university. So tell us a little bit more about, about your personal journey, how you went from, you know, being countryside boy to becoming an economist. I guess it was, it, I, I had to, very early on, there was some strong signal. So I was never really interested in the farm and I was very interested in, in, in school and reading and things like that. But there were two things that were uh, fascinating uh, me. One, I remember when I was 10, I was playing that game and I could stay forever playing that game. And I was getting the corn pieces from a farm and each corn piece was money. It was like, let's say $1. 
And then I would have his village and I would have a central bank that print corn so that the, the central bank was sending corn to, to, to the village, was getting some high servants like teachers and so on. And I was struggling with the idea of like, how do I create economic growth here? Because the number of grain is fixed. And so it's just a matter of end of redistribution. This thing is not growing. I'm, there's something I'm not getting here. And so I, I, I spent ages on like trying like, you know, to print more corn from a central bank to see like what the effect would be. What if I had less civil servants and then asking like my, my builders of houses to work harder, but then I was running out of wood. So how do I create more wood? I have finite resources in my village. So I was struggling with kind of questions like when I was 10, which I think is probably a bit abnormal and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and sadly the kind of job I should do. And the other thing that was fascinating me when I was 10 was, again, I had nothing. I was not watching TV. We did have some kind of TV. I didn't know anything. The only thing I could see was like on Sunday, there was a mess in my, in my village, 200 people gathering and then this priest lecturing 200 people and people are listening. And I was fascinated by that guy. And I wanted to be a priest because I said, this is so cool. You, 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 you go on stage and there are these 200 people who listen to you lecturing them about whatever you're thinking. Okay. And that's just the coolest job ever. And plus, given the level of a lecture of a priest, I thought I could do better. Okay, I could be a lot more interesting <laughs> than that guy uh, because a lot of his stories I thought were not completely making sense. So that was, you know, and so at 10, I was playing with my grains of corn and already like lecturing, imagining that I was uh, explaining to people my views on things or what I had discovered with my grains of corn. So basically, without knowing that this job even existed, I think I was already... <laughs> That was that was it. I can only imagine the kind of looks you were getting from your relatives and, uh, and friends when you know using the grains of corn as well as money. But that's pretty cool. Thanks, uh, thanks for sharing. And so you know, fast forward, fast forwarding. I have worked with several institutional investors on on their private equity investment decisions and benchmarking systems. What has been your most intriguing piece of work so far? The most exciting one was certainly in 2011 when I worked with the Ministry of Finance in Norway on their sovereign wealth fund on whether or not they should invest in private equity and writing a report about that. And they pushed me very hard. They, they were very serious people at the Ministry of Finance and very ethical people. And they just wanted to have the cleanest answer possible. And they circulated my report, gave me a lot of feedback. And I worked very hard on that report. And, and that was certainly a highlight and, and, and something that was where I felt was quite central and impactful. It went to the parliament to be discussed and that led to a decision by the Sovereign Wealth Fund, which I was not involved in. I just gave a report that led to the decision of not investing in private equity for the Sovereign Wealth Fund and to stick to uh, listed instruments. So that was certainly like a very important piece of, of work. I had some other like interesting ones. The most recent one, probably like when I when I worked with JP Morgan on developing this index I alluded to earlier of publicly traded stocks that are in the private equity industry, where we use some natural language processing to look at all the press releases of all these publicly traded companies, see the ones who mention private equity in relation of their names in press releases, that gives us an idea of who is involved with private equity. And this way, we get like a long list of names, which are like people doing fund administration, people doing like placement agents, etc. all have as a source of revenue, something that is very tied up to how well private equity is doing. So if private equity is doing very well, fund administrators are working hard, placement agents are working hard, et cetera. And by having all these names automatically gathered and then creating an index of these names, 
I think I have something that's pretty close to the return of, of the private equity industry or the underlying private equity funds. And it was fascinating to see that I was getting the same returns as the Cambridge Associates private equity index. And then over the last two years, that it went up like 80%, just like the main private equity indices as well. So, so that was pretty cool to see that natural language processing and analyzing 4 million pieces of press release automatically and coming up with an index and, and constructing it smartly in terms of like liquidity management. So it is an, a pretty advanced aspect of that too in there. That was pretty cool. That's cool. So that's, that's my latest one. But I, I did a number of cool stuff. My, my work at BlackRock was also cool. At BlackRock, I was in charge of the capital market assumptions for private markets. That was also an extremely interesting time to, to devise models to come up with capital market assumptions for, for private markets. I, I, this was also very interesting and, and very, a big insight into a big machine like BlackRock. Thank you. Going back to the industry, buyout multiples are at an all-time high due to more funds available. And that's putting lots of pressures on the industry of continue generating higher returns or higher returns. Do you see private equity shifting more and more towards value creation and improving operational performance than before? I think the industry talks more about it maybe than, than before, although they have always talked a lot about it. And the, the industry and all the incentives are so bad, you have to increase the beta organic. And, and so I think it was always there, this pressure. And I'm, I don't know if it's really more now. I mean, on paper, you could say, well, if I pay more for an asset, it's even more crucial that I increase the EBITDA. But even if you had paid less, if you increase more EBITDA, you make even more money. And people are you know, very incentivized to get more money at any point in time. So there's certainly a lot. I mean, it's reasonable to think that people are more focused on operational improvement. But my sense is that they... I've, I've been around for 20 years and they, they always talked a lot about that. They've never said, oh, we just like put this capital structure on the company. We just change the capital structure and we're all good. Like they never did that. And, and so the characterization of, oh, we used to do that, but now we don't do that. It's all about the operational improvements. I don't know, 20 years ago, they were saying the same things. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Thinking about the post-pandemic uh, recovery, more of that will have to be driven by and will be driven by small, medium enterprises. However, they will need to be helped out of the structural headwinds, material inflation, the great resignation, and need for investment in digital. Now, private equity firms could prove to be great partners of this type of uh, small, medium companies. And actually, they've already been active investors in the middle market before. But this is going to require more lasting and collaborative approach. How do you see that panning out for both the PE firms and investors in PE funds? I don't know if we need more a longer relationship than, than in the past. I think maybe it was always there was always a need of for many companies to have longer term relationships. And there was not too much of capital in that doing that. I think one trend clearly is has been of asset owners gaining more control about the investment. So this is what we call the Canadian model of investing. The idea is that as an asset owner, you work in collaboration with experts like, you know, maybe McKinsey people or the like, and you acquire these assets and you hold them for a very long time. And these operational experts are brought in whenever you need. They monitor the company, et cetera, and you can hold that for 10 or 20 years. So my sense is that, so this is happening. There is that trend. I had predicted that trend 10 years ago or even 15 years ago. 
And so compared to my prediction, it is not going as fast as I had predicted, but I think eventually we'll get there. I think eventually the pandemic is going to swing back to the asset owners who are going to say, am I getting value for money here? I'm paying 7% fees. And I think that what's going to accelerate it is we know the price is at all-time high. When price at all-time high, expected returns are at all-time low. When you are dealing with an asset class who's charging 7% fees on average, and you have low expected returns, these 7% fees are going to bite more than they have in the past, right? So in the past, it's no small feat what private equity managed to do. They managed to basically be in the ballpark of public markets, net of fees, maybe slightly above. But charging 7% fees, that means that gross of fees, they are way above on average, which is like incredible when you know how hard it is to like beat public markets. You're buying and selling companies at public market prices. And so if you don't do anything, you just get the public market returns. Managing to do 7% more a year is huge. So they managed to cover the fees in the past, but it was a relatively high expected return or realized return environment. Like the realized return was like 20. You take 7%, you give 13. It's okay. But if you have a low expected return environment, like a 12 or 13 gross of fees, which would already be pretty strong, you take out seven. Now, now this is tricky. And so I think that given the, the fees are going to bite even more in going forward than they have in the past. And also because the effort of transparency forced private equity firms to reveal more and more the exact fee bill. I think that this will accelerate the trend which I had predicted a bit too early and, and a bit too strong, but asset owners are going to take control and say, if I need somebody to source CEOs for my assets, I'll call somebody who knows how to source CEOs. If I need somebody to change the capital structure of my underlying assets, I will call somebody to do that. And so they're going to force private equity firms to unbundle their services and say, I will call you for what I need and when I need it. And stop charging me 7% for all in experience, right? And that we have seen that with all the financial products that were expensive. It's always people try to bundle everything together. And then as people put more pressure, if a pandemic goes to the client at one point, they, they force it to be unbundled and transparent. And at that point in time, there is massive pressure on having an offering for every single piece separately with lower fees and asset owners choosing what they need when they need it. So, and, and so that's that more of a Canadian model coming. So we are getting to the end of our podcast. And in closing, I wanted to ask you, so your book, Private Equity Laid Bear, launched in 2017, and I believe it's already the third edition, is quite popular in the private equity community, in the institutional investor community. So tell us a bit more about uh, what's the topic of the next book. So the, the, the next book is going to be building on that very much. It, it, it's a change of title and, and, and the content will continue to evolve in the direction of sustainable private markets and the title will be sustainable private markets. I think that throughout what I always had in mind was this idea of sustainable private markets. So when we think about measuring performance in a better way, having more transparencies on fees, et cetera, it's in order for the asset class to be more sustainable. And the other work I've, I've done more recently on how employees are treated when they are under private equity ownership, which kind of employee benefits, which one is hurt, et cetera. This is also about sustainability. I have written a case study, which I'm actually trying to turn into a movie right now, that is on, on impact investing and, 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 and in private markets. So the next book will be called Sustainable Private Markets. The book has already evolved in that direction. And so it will just be a little bit more 
And so that would be, in a sense, the fourth edition, but with, with a new title. The, the book was self-published so that it could evolve very quickly over time. So every two years, there, would, there was a new version, and the new version would come immediately to the market. Like, as soon as I write it, it's available the next day on Amazon. In a traditional book, you release it, and then, you know, it's available, like, two or three years later by the time it gets, you know, copy-edited, and it goes to referees, et cetera, and then by the time it's printed and so on, you have three years. In my case, I've always been very reactive. So when, when the debt market, for example, evolved dramatically from being bank-dominated to private alternative lenders-dominated, immediately that chapter was completely rewritten to explain this evolution, et cetera. So the book has always been live, in a sense. And so the next live version that will come in a year or so will be sustainable private markets with just like a more coherent narrative around sustainability in private markets. Very interesting, and I look forward to to read it. So thank you very much, uh, Ludovic. This has been a, a great conversation. Your insights from your research are pretty, pretty interesting. And uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Fernway Insights. Please visit fernway.com for more podcasts, publications, and events on developments shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector.